This is Mike Balaban, and you're listening to an episode of Bammer and Me. My guest today is Jim Farratt, who is something of a legend in LGBT activist circles. Just by way of a little background, Jim has so many things he's done and seen that focus on all of them today. He was an early co-founder of the Yippies, which was an anti-war movement during the Vietnam War in the 60s. That believed in humor. They believed in humor? Okay. Yes, as a weapon. Did it work? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. The stock market exchange, yes, yeah. it worked. He also, just as a contrast, was a co-founder of a very hot dance club that uh, brought the downtown cl- crowd uptown in the 80s called Danceteria. And he was an early co-founder of the Gay Liberation Front, mm-hmm. the first gay activist movement. His Claim to fame, if you will, in terms of the first thing about it, is that Jim was at the Stonewall Rebellion the night of the first, what would you call it? Uh, well, it was the first day of, the, of, of something that changed all of our lives, all of our lives, whether we knew about it or not. It's, uh, the Stonewall Rebellion made possible a different world for gay and lesbian people, same-sex loving people all over the world. All over the world. And it took three nights for it really to play itself out. It was was actually four nights. On the third night, Mm -hmm. uh, the Gay Liberation Front was founded. And um, we took our... This is the end of the 60s. And the black movement had... Black power movement, women's liberation, young lords, all the different things that... Flower power, sex sex and love. Yes, yes, I was very much involved with that. The hippie, all of those things proceeded. And we were in all of those things, but we were certainly not visible and we were not out because the homophobia on the left and on the right was the same thing. And, and I can't tell you why, but I was out in all those movements, but I was very alone. And it was what happened for me at the Stonewall Rebellion on that first night on the street, because I think what happened that night happened on the street. It certainly wasn't about the sleazy mafia-run bar. You know, that was, yes, we could go into it, but at what price did we have to pay? And I think what we had to pay was our freedom and our sense of who we actually are as human beings to participate in the mob-controlled environments that allowed us to dance that allowed us to, to see each other and meet each other. But it was all control. It was all control. Anyway. Should we start with so, that evening? Uh, that evening, I, I at the time I had a job. By the way, I've never been a professional gay. I've never made my living by being a, a professional gay. I was um, hired by Clive Davis, who was at Columbia Records, which was part of CBS, to be not as assistant, but to be present. And I was at the board meetings. I was uh, help with the marketing department. I had a history in music. I had a history with knowing artists that were making the music of the 60s. I, you and know, by the way, if, for those who aren't aware, Clive Davis is a legend. Yes. And there's a documentary out on right now that just shows how he's been instrumental in choosing the artists that become most popular in the music scene from really rock and roll until now. Clive Davis was one of the last people who actually had ears. He was also a lawyer, so he could do the corporate life very well. Um, Everyone thinks I got hired because I was cute and he was gay. I never knew he was gay until he came out, quote-unquote, as Studio 54 as a bisexual. But Mr. Davis taught me a lot about integrity and follow-through, and I really have no regrets about having taken a job within the corporate. Because one of the things that I did, we didn't, I was also a member of the White Panther Party. The White Panther Party was supposedly the white version of the Black Panther Party. We were nowhere like the Black Panther Party with an organization, but was founded by John Sinclair, a poet and a jazz maker in Detroit. And, and Iggy came out of that group. It's just a very interesting MC5, which was a band at that time, very political band, a good rock and roll. And I remember going to when a musician set up this interview with Clive Davis, and I said, I don't want to work. I don't want to work at CBS. I don't want to go. He said, just go for me, because I need to have someone I can talk to here. And I went, and I met Mr. Davis, and I remember I kept saying, no, I'm not interested. No, I'm not interested, and walked out with a dream job, with a salary that was beyond my thoughts, 
my own office with a window in, in the CBS building, which I didn't realize was such a huge perk. And I went to the, so I was, he offered me all of this and I went to my White Panther Party meeting and there were people that are active in Hollywood in this group. There were like maybe 10 of us and we were all gay, we were all men. I was the only gay person in it. And I said, what should I do? What should I do? And they said, you just take it, take it, inside, outside. And then we talked about what I could actually accomplish. And that was, I could get CBS, Columbia Records, to by advertising in the emerging underground press, which was located in my loft on Bond Street, the Underground Press Association syndicate. And so I did that, and we... Once CBS and Columbia bought ads and all of these papers, alternative papers, uh, coming up around the country, all the other record companies did. And that ended when at the CBS annual meeting a year and a half later, the head of the John Birch Society stood up and asked General Sarnoff, who was the overall CEO of CBS, why are you sponsoring a communist revolution? And he was talking about the ads for artists that were placed in all the alternative paper. So I, I felt really good about succeeding at that. It's also a world when I went to Woodstock, I went to uh, the Monterey Pop Festival, I went to the Isle of Wight Festival, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, uh, just to pull two people out. Those are the people I was running with. And when I, after Stonewall... I still dressed like a rock and roll person. I had leather pants and snakeskin boots and long blonde hair and a cowboy hat. And I didn't know that the coding in the gay community about wearing leather pants meant something totally different than rock and roll. But so that's just a, that's just a part of my life. And it was in 1969, I had that job. And I kept that job until October, and I had had it for about a year. And and I remember going in and saying to Clive Davis, "I'm I have to I'm going to resign." And he tried to talk me out of it. And I said, <laughs> "It sounds foolish at this point, but I said I want to make a revolution in my lifetime where everyone can be free, and that's what I'm going to do." And I was out. He knew I was a gay man. We never talked about it. And the and I left. Here's this working class. Roman Catholic uh, youth who grows up in Rhode Island in working-class neighborhood with Portuguese on one side of the street and Italians on the other side of the street, and in the middle are the Irish. And I walked away. My, remember, my mother said, why would you do that? And I tried to explain to her, but she didn't really understand why I would give up my office in the, with a window in the CBS building. And that was the spirit of the time. But that was four months after Stonewall when you did that, right? Yes, when I finally did that. So tell us about what happened that evening, where you were and why you were there. And let me just preface this by saying, as you and I have already discussed, there are a lot of different stories about that evening, some of them by people we know and love. Everybody's got a different take on it. Some people remember things that others don't, but you are one of the go-to sources for that evening, so I'm going to let you ask you to set us straight, pun, pun intended. What I'm going to say is going to come to a surprise to many people, because the mythology of that night and the three nights that followed has overwhelmed reality, and I'm being nice about what I'm saying. But yes, I was coming home from working late. It was a Friday night, a Saturday night. It was Friday night. And, and I usually would go into work around one o'clock in the afternoon because I was out at night listening to musicians, et cetera, et cetera, and political people. I was very involved politically. And so I get out of the subway and I get on Christopher Street and I live a block and a half from Christopher Street and I'm walking up Christopher Street and I see this police car and it's parked in front of the Stonewall Inn, a bar that I did not like. It was sleazy, watered-down drinks. It had a tiny dance floor. It wasn't two stories. It was just one floor. There was a really good dance bar called the Cherry Lane, much nicer and sexier bartenders, by the way, that I used to go to. Let so, me also, you corrected me and my understanding about the clientele of... The Stonewall at that time, right. there were very few drag queens there. Because it was mostly my, this is my recollection of the few times I had actually been inside the club. It mostly seemed to be closeted married men looking to hook up with younger men. For pay? Uh, well, gentlemen always needed car fare. In right, a sense. right. No, I don't want to make it 
sound. It's what these men had to do. The, the closet was such an incredibly controlling issue in all of our lives. And that's one of the things that Stonewall took away, certainly for me. And, or by drugs. The jukebox, by the way, the legendary Stonewall jukebox, organized crime controlled the jukeboxes. The other bars, whether they were straight or gay, all had the same songs on it. There might be one song that would be put on the thing, but it was nothing special. This mythology yeah. of the Stonewall jukebox, and you could go into other places and hear the same songs. So I get, I, so I walk up the street, I see the car there, and I'm across a good radical from the, the anti-war movement and the yippies, and I go to see what the fuck is going on at the Stonewall. And I get in front of the Stonewall, and there's a few other people. It's Saturday night as early as 10.30. And the door opens from the bar. Now, by the way, the bar was all had a black coverings over the window. You could not look in. Which and was the, typical of gay bars at the yeah, time. And you would, the legend of San Francisco was one of the things that happened right after Stonewall is that one of the bars on Castro Street put big windows in front that you could see in and people could see out. Twin Peaks. What? Yes, yes. And that was a radical thing. Because you didn't want the world to see you in No, them. you were afraid. You yeah. didn't want to be recognized. You could lose your job. There were no protections in the workplace, in, the, in, in any of the schools, or the colleges that protected you if you were discovered to be a homosexual. You could be fired. You could be thrown out. You could be really stigmatized. And worst of all, you could get your name in the newspaper as a known homosexual. It was an awful, awful time. And that's what the fear was. That's why it was boarded up. And so the door opens and out comes a cop with this very stocky, short, white, Italian maybe, uh, woman, completely in male drag. And um, the nice term was passing woman. She passed as a man. Now, this is all before the gender discussion that we're in today. Or they would call her bull dyke. That was the ugly word. And, and she put it into the police car. The cop goes back inside. And true to her gender expression, she starts rocking the car back and forth. And the door pops open. One of the doors was not locked by the cop. And she comes out and she raises her hand and she's got these handcuffs on. And she may be a very butch and bulky lesbian, but her wrists are female. And she slips out of the handcuffs and a cheer goes up. There's like maybe 40 or 50 people now gathered around watching her. And she starts again pushing her body against the police car that starts to tip, does not tip over starts to tip and people are cheering. It was a very gay, exciting moment. It wasn't like the template that's always put on this of the radical sort of a straight idea of riot and all that sort of thing. This, again, we have to frame it for those not aware. Gays had never fought back. No, they, they weren't allowed in most of the organizations that we're talking about. Betty Friedan had just thrown out the lesbians from the from now, and she did that. And I want to, I mean, Betty Friedan is an important figure right. in feminism, but she did that because she was afraid that if men found out that there were lesbians in, in the women's movement, they would say, oh, they're just a bunch of dykes, they hate men. And that's really what, and, and that is being homophobic, but there's a reality to this. And and so, no, no protection. And so people are celebrating. They're like at a, a, a like in a dance, a disco. They're cheering and they're dancing around. Literally, this is what's going on. It's not like they're breaking windows and smashing right. things down. And it was a celebratory moment. And for me, I remember that this is a flashpoint that I've never forgotten. And I'm not very good at explaining what happened, but I will try. I suddenly looked around me and I saw... Almost all younger gay men. I was young then too, but I was younger. And we looked at each other. We somehow, this gaydar or this gay spirit moment happened that was not about sexual objectification. It was about seeing each other. The closet had been broken. Like belonging. Yes, our community. And, I, and it completely changed my life. That moment completely changed my life. And so the, the, then the police are called. Now, Christmas Street is a very narrow street. 
And it's also where the bus goes. And it's one of the main entrances into Sheridan Square, which is where the young runaways were, were hanging out because they weren't let into the bar. There's a whole myth about, oh, they, they, they tried to burn it down. They tried to do all... None of those things are factual. And I just want to say to anyone who um, believes those stories and really thinks that's great, it's great. I'm sorry to tell you that black trans women were not visible. They probably would not have gotten into the bar because racism was very active in how the mob had the bar system in New York City. Right. Yes, there were black gay bars. Some were in Harlem and some were in, 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 in Times Square. That doesn't mean that no black person would get in, but you were not going to go. And there were no black trans women. There might have been drag, there were street drag queens. And I'm sorry to have to tell people, and, and, and it's actually true because I'm going to talk about two friends of mine, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia was on her way. Marsha tells me, because Marsha had called Sylvia. She wasn't at the Stonewall. She wasn't in the Stonewall. She wasn't even on Christopher Street. She was over on the other side of Sheridan Square. And she called Sylvia. And Sylvia was in Queens. And she took a cab to come in. And she passed out in the car. I don't know if she was high or she was drunk. She never got there. She was there from night two on. There was no, there's no denying that. But she was not there. And Marsha, I don't know where people were supposed to get these bricks that they threw. There was no bricks uh, on the street. There was no place. You might have picked up a pebble or a stone, but this whole idea of, of, of Marsha P. Johnson or Silver Rivera throwing the first book. Or, or Molotov cocktails. Or a Molotov cocktail. Now, uh, I, I, Michaela had told me that they were throwing pennies, coppers. They were throwing pennies inside the bar at the cop. And when they came out, now this is whole myth about we are the Stonewall girls. That happened the second night. And it wasn't Queens. It was people, it was gay men that were active in Madison. One of them had been my boyfriend, um, Marty Robinson. And they, there was a solidarity of shock. We're going to be exactly what you hate. Whether we're queens or not, we're going to be queens and we're throwing pennies. Outrageous, which has always been a line of defense. The drag queen heightens things so much. And to me, it was always a complete attack on binary rules of what was acceptable for men and what was acceptable for women. And I thought very courageous, and I still do. Although it's been assimilated now that Lady Bunny still has that attitude. Well, it's really hard for young people today to understand just how rigid and codified behavior was. Oh, absolutely. The 50s. This is, we're talking about the 50s culture and, and you had to look a certain way, you had to behave a certain way. And, but we, and not just we gay and lesbian people, but we artists, we motorcycle babes, we, the outsiders formed and bonded together. Not so much in a city like New York, but across the country, there was always one bar where the gay people went, where the lesbian people went, where the poets went, where the artists went, where the motorcycle gangs went, and all got along together because they were all outsiders. It was an counterculture, under outsiders. It was not counterculture. It was bohemian, it was underground, and it was wonderful. And it doesn't exist anymore. The counterculture came at the end of the 60s through the hippie movement. And so, that, so there I am, and, and this goes on, and the cops come, and they arrest like 13 people. Uh, eight of them were people that work in the club. Some of the people that work in the club got away because the mob did not want them arresting people because they might say something that they're not supposed to say. What, like that they're paid off? Or? Whatever. Yeah. They, were just, they, they always say run. But they arrest. And when I had Danceteria, it got raided one night. And it happened at 1030 at night. And So they why were, do the cops raided at 1030 in the evening as opposed to 2 in the morning? Well, because there's nobody there. And so, therefore, less likely to be an incident. Of the this is all known. It's usually set up. That night at Stonewall, it wasn't set up, uh, as far as I know. Uh, it was, and and, the, and David Carter's Stonewall ride is full of untruths. I just want to put that out there. Just to, and, and I can debate that, that's this. A, that's a book, right? Yes, that's yeah. a book, and I can debate this with anyone. Right. I mean, who would like to talk about? It. I don't mean debate. A good conversation is right. healthy, and I'm not taking away from the power of myth. But I'm one of those people that believes that facts matter. 
and that truth matters. And you can find, I think that what happened at Stonewall that, that night forever changed history, forever changed how we saw ourselves, let alone how other people saw ourselves. And it's a universal happening beyond crossing cultures, crossing borders, crossing language. We who love each other of the same sex, we who don't conform to the gender rules that we're supposed to, we are community and we are we go across all the cultural differences, you know, all the language differences. Did you see yourself differently after that evening? I had been very active in the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm. As I was out, I, I don't, I can't explain to you why I made those choices, yeah. maybe because I couldn't pass. I was also an actor and I was trained by Lee Strasberg and this was like theater to me. And yes, I mean, when I realized, let me just tell the sure. end of the evening, the cops had cleared the street. There wasn't a big battle. You see that one picture of angry young people looking at a camera, and a couple of them in the back are looking fabulous at the same time. <laughs> but that's not a riot. Yeah. That's not a riot. Yes, when the cops got, were getting people out of the street, people were, I don't want that kind of stuff, but it wasn't a riot. And after about, oh, maybe 12.45, 1 o'clock, the street was cleared. Uh, people had left. And... I noticed some people I knew that were hanging around. Marty Robinson from the Mattachine Youth, who had been my, my lover at one point, uh, was one of them. And we gathered together, there were seven of us, we gathered up seven men, gay men, and gathered on the corner and said, how do we keep this going? All white? All were white. And, and listen, I, I, I want to make it very clear that I, as a white, working-class, Irish-English kid, Roman Catholic from Rhode Island, from Riverside, Rhode Island, okay? Not Barrington, which is what I like to tell people. I was from Riverside, which was where working class people live. I lost my point. I didn't understand the privilege that my skin color gave me to do what I did that night and what I have done the rest of my life. Okay, I didn't understand at that moment. And yes, so we were, yes, we, that was a privilege right. that we, it's, it's based upon race. And also, this bar did not, the, the, the racism that existed in the mobs organization of gay clubs, and it was systemic in the police department, they allowed these all over the city and it was payoffs and they didn't want to talk about that. Police are one of the reasons that it became called a riot, because the police information person contacted the Daily News and said that three cops had been injured in a riot in Christopher Street. Three cops went to the St. Vincent's Hospital because one high-on-speed lesbian outside on the street, one of the th that was arrested, tried to bite him. She was with her two gay male friends. And she didn't pierce the uniform, she didn't pierce the skin, and when they went to the hospital, which their union had told them always to do, they were let go. They weren't treated, they, there was no injuries. But the police department sent the Daily News this information, and the next day the Daily News has a headline with three cops injured in riot on Christopher Street. And I call up the, the reporter, and I say, where did you get that information? And he, I said, were you there? He said, oh, no, no, I wasn't there. I was going on the police report that was sent to us. I said, you know, that wasn't true. It wasn't a riot. So that's how this gets. What people say, well, the Daily News said it was a riot, Jim, but it wasn't a riot. The next night was much more militant because we seven of us gathered there and each of us had a job. And someone was going to, there's no fax machines. You had a no job, cell. meaning you had parsed out certain yes, responsibilities? Yes, responsibility. There were no fax machines. There were no cell phones. There was voicemail on some people's phones, and we had to spread the word to come down and join us. Right. And a lot of people came down, a lot of gay men and lesbians, and some straight people. And I'll never forget, there was one left group that always showed up at every demonstration, and they carried these big orange banners. It was, they were called Youth Against War and Fascism, and they were a sectarian leftist group. And in the front of it, there were all these women that I thought, God, they look like lesbians. They were sort of working class looking and a little overweight, and they had short hair. And then I thought, 
God, that's how all the moms look in the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And after leading them was Leslie Feinberg, who I did know from the anti-war movement. And Leslie Feinberg wrote the first book on transgendered activism. Uh, and there she was. And I remember, I never knew if Leslie Feinberg was a boy or a girl. And I just gave up. I wasn't going to ask Leslie Feinberg whether she was a boy or a girl. I just accepted whatever she was, she was an out. She was, and she's leading this group in, that's the only left group that showed up. Left, the left yeah, group. The left group. Right. Uh, the motherfuckers, who were a bunch of anarchists on the Lower East Side, also showed up that second night. And I had gotten a phone call in the early in the day from Ren D'Antonio, who was the daughter of the of D'Antonio, the documentary filmmaker who had won Academy Awards, etc. And she said, Jim, I just heard from Super Joe in the motherfuckers. And he says, they're going to come tonight. And he called me. He was closeted. He was a gay man in the motherfuckers, and they didn't know he was a gay man. And I knew Super Joe. And he called, she, and he knew we were mutual friends. She said, he called me, and he, he wanted you to know that's what's going to happen. So I go to my seven people, and I say, this is going to happen. And they say, oh, then you should take care of them. Meaning? Meaning I sh I'm the point person that's supposed to deal with them. But to make sure they don't... Yeah, so I and I didn't want to do this because I knew them, and you were not someone you you could say don't do this. Right. So I go and they're, and they're there with bottles, and they're there with rocks, and they're sitting at the back of the crowd, and they start throwing things. And I I'm going to use some sexist language sure. here. I said, "You're all a bunch of pussies. These people here have never been in anything like this for the most part." They don't know how to behave if the police come in on horses. Why don't you go up in front? That's what you should do, because you could show them what to do. But standing in the back here, they didn't want to go up front. They wanted to be in the back and try to start something and blame the people that were not doing what they were doing. Right. And so that was the struggle. I had also taught a number of people that we had gathered early in the night what to do if a, if a police horse, a, a cop on a horse comes in. It's a very scary thing. If you're in a sit down on a street and they charge you with horses, you better get out of the, out of the way because it's, those are very heavy animals. And I had pulled out a hat pin. Now the animal people are going to get really upset with me, but I told them you put the, you, you take the, the hat pin and you put it into the flank of the horse and the horse will reel back. So it's a way to get the police off your yeah, case. Yes, right? yes. Um, and it doesn't, uh, I shouldn't say it doesn't hurt the horse, but it doesn't injure the horse. This is a, re a reflective action. And yet it wasn't, a, there, there were no smashing of windows. There was no people out of control. I have been in an actual riot in, in, in Watts when I lived in L.A. when I was an actor. And I have uh, seen what happens in the aftermath, the, the incredible silence that goes on. Meanwhile, we had organized that we were going to take people in different direct, because the village is made off of not parallel street, but streets that go every which way. Because we knew if we went all in one group marching, that the cops would stop us. So I was in the group. That, divide and conquer. Yes, yes. And it's still a tactic that they do. And I was in the group that went past Julius's. Now, Julius's was one of the oldest bars in the village. And nobody was gay at Julius's until they had a couple of beers. You know, everyone's trying to pass this. They were straight. And, oh, I'm only here for the hamburgers. That was Jim's <laughs> line. And we go by, and I don't know who did this. It wasn't me. But someone started yelling, come out, join us, come out. And that's where the mantra of come out came about. No one came out. They lifted their beer bottles. Cheers. They lifted their drinks. And off we went roaming the streets. Do you want to explain why that mantra is meaningful? Pardon do you want to explain why come out is meaningful? Come out, it's that moment, that flashpoint moment that I said, I was out, but I always, in the movements I was in, I always made excuses for myself never to challenge the homophobia that I knew was everywhere. But wasn't there a poster, a famous poster that had... I'm going to get to the oh, okay, poster. Okay, okay. Sorry. Because it's an interesting question about yeah. race. And the... Just one second. Justin, I'm going to have you delete this. The, the uh, bowl keeps... Hitting glass and making it bing, bing, bing. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, Start, we're starting over. The, the come out. It's, yes, so come out. That's what happened to me in that flashbulb moment. My goal always has been since that moment 
to mesh together my sexual orientation life and my public life and my private life. Make it one person. When you meet Jim, you meet who he is, right. you know? Um, and, and it's always been my goal. I think it's the most important thing that we can do. It means dealing with internalized homophobia, which we all grow up with, just like internalized racism, which all white people grow up with. And so it, it became, it was easy. Come out. Because also we wanted them to fucking join us. And so we're going on. And the third night, Mattachine, who was very upset about this, because they were, the Mattachine, first of all, the Mattachine Society was the first sort of 50s group that formed in Los Angeles. Everything Ant by the book, everything yeah. very... Well, they there had been police entrapment in the gay beach in Santa Monica. And they were, people were being arrested and they'd always plead guilty and they whatever. And Harry Hay, who was, who's been, was my mentor, if I ever say I have a mentor, it was Harry, who had been an actor and had been a communist in the 30s and was political and, and handsome. And he tried, he called his friends... And they met about seven of them. It's interesting, the seven number comes up a lot. And, and they formed, they, they wanted to have a public demonstration against the police entrapment. And they wanted people to plead not guilty. And an extraordinary request of people or demand of people when they could lose their jobs, and etc. And so we... They, the Mattachine threw all the Harry Hayes out in the early 90s. They became a totally assimilation group. And I have to put this in context. I know I could, at the time, I was very critical of how could you do that. But I now know from my own experience of being the age that I am that they were terrified of what had happened in the 50s with the McCarthy hearings. It wasn't just communists, but it was also homos. And they didn't want that to be repeated again. Now, I don't agree with that politic, but I didn't understand that was what it was. And Frank Kameny, who has to be thought of by Jim Ferrat as a hero, although we had awful fights with each other back then, who was the founder of Madison in a civil service job and said, I'm gay and I'm entitled to these rights. And was never hired again. I didn't know that. I thought he kept his job. No. Uh, yeah. I'm going to read my, that my, my friend Eric Cervini's book, The Deviance War, The United States of America versus the Homosexual, recounts how he spent the rest of his career fighting to try to get his job back. Well, I'm going to read that book. Yeah. And Frank, it took me a long time. And Frank and the others, Barbara Giddings, Kay Tom Thompson, her lover. These were the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, the first... Uh, no, she was a member of the Daughters. It was Phyllis and Phyllis's partner in San Francisco that, that founded the Daughters of Belitis. And there's a whole other story I'm not right. going to go into about. Uh, but it took me a long time. I remember calling Barbara Giddings, who I thought hated me. Uh, and I said, look, we may be on the different sides of this issue, but we're united in wanting lesbian and gay people to be free. So can we talk? And she was the one who, with her pipe in her hand, agreed to have a meeting with me. And, and when I said, why were you so against us? And part of it was the leftist ideas because she talked about the 50s and she talked about what had happened to the Wallace people, to anyone who McCarthy went after, okay. whether they were communists or not, labeled them and okay. all the gay people that were outed in that time and, and, and were not protected. And I have to tell you, I went, I thanked her and I went home and I thought, why didn't I understand this? You know, I had to, because I was so arrogant about being, you know, the, the gay liberation. Well, you were the young Turks and we always push things harder yes, and faster. Yes, yes. But you're, you're basically saying this in the context of walking past Julius and those closeted businessmen unwilling to come out, right? That's right. And the only time, I never was an outer. I didn't believe in outing because I knew how hard it was to come right. out. And everyone has their own journey. Right. And it's not, the same schedule isn't for everyone. I've had famous people, musicians that I have held my hand out, but I never pulled them out right. because that's something, that's homophobia. That's what a homophobia attack. And coming out was, so let's go to, so the GLF, Gay Liberation Front, forms on the third night. And, and our name comes from the National Liberation Front of North Vietnam. We were anti-war right. people. And 
the feminists that have been thrown out of uh, now came to our meeting. Now being the National Organization for Women. The lesbians, the lavender menace later, that's what Betty called them. Betty Friedan, who's the founder of now. And and she she threw them out, which I can now say I understand, but I sure as hell didn't understand it back then, because she felt if men, straight men, found out that there were lesbians in in the National Organization of Women, they would think, oh, that's just a bunch of dykes. They hate women. And they, they would, would never make any progress. She was wrong, but she was right. She eventually, they had a reconciliation in the late 70s yes, yes. and were invited back in. Yes. Oh. So how did the third so, so, end? So we formed and we based our structure on the original Mattachine's structure, which was based upon the communist cells in America in the 30s. So you keep your independence in... We had a, we had a, we did have a, a, a weekly meeting wherever all the cells came in and right. reported. And we did it not so much because of communism. We did it because we wanted to make sure that anyone who wanted to join us would find something that would attract them. If you wanted to work on a dance... If you wanted to work on poetry, if you wanted to work on the newspaper, but wasn't it also for the anonymity that cells gave you? It wasn't so important as it was in the '30s because right. it was against the law. And yes, we were against the law, but not in the same way. It was really to find to say if you come that you f- could find something that that you wanted to be a part of. Gotcha. I mean. Jim Ferrat would be up talking politics, and maybe that isn't why you were there. Maybe you wanted to knit or just be social or right. whatever. And it was a great structure for that reason. In fact, everyone could find their, their, their right. place. And one of the cells was put together to put out our newspaper, which was going to be called Come Out. And I was a part of that, and I wrote for the paper, and I once had to write an apology in the paper for something that I wrote about the Black Panthers. Not negative. I was too positive. <laughs> And I think it's really important to admit when you make a mistake and learn. And believe it or not, I have done that all my life. Uh, and so we decided that we were the big one of the big phrases that people, the homophobes were throwing at us. They recruit children. They recruit. I don't believe that you can choose to be a homosexual. And why in anyone's right mind in that period would you choose to be a homosexual right. or a lesbian? And so we were going to do a recruitment. We decided to do, come out, was going to put out a recruitment poster. Kind and of tongue-in-cheek? Let me explain. We wanted to confront, we wanted to take back, we wanted to say who we were. We were not intimidated by this recruitment. Yeah, we're recruiting. Come join the Sisters and Brothers of the Gay Liberation right. Front. And that was one of the things. Come out, join the Sisters and Brothers of the Gay Liberation Front on the signage on the photo. And at the time, I had I was I had a lover named Peter Hugerar, who has since become very well known as... Extremely a, prominent photographer of, of homoerotic photos. I, mean, I said he's an extremely prominent photographer who's... I saw his work at the Morgan Museum about four or five years ago, and there are books out on it now, and people should take a look yeah, at it. I wouldn't say so much homoerotic, although there was that element. He's a master photographer because he went beneath the surface. And I, I, I agree with you. I think people should really look at his photos, but do it alone and really find out, look really into those photographs to see what he's accomplished. Right. And I said to Peter, we're going to do this poster. Would you take the picture? And he wasn't famous and it's a public figure, but in the photography and art world, he was well known. And he said, he's in love with me. So of course he said yes. And so we sat together for about maybe four or five nights to figure out what, what do we want to do. And it was really Peter's idea. He said, I want people running in the street, fearless, fearless, smiling, having a good time, which is the exact opposite of how we were always images, shamed or in shadows. And that. So we set up that picture. And the way people got in the photograph was we announced at three of the weekly meetings that we're doing this picture in Soho. There's people trying to say it was in Union Square. It was. I set up the picture. I know where it was. It was in Soho. And um, it said anyone who comes will be in the picture. And so the day of the picture, the morning of the picture, on Green Street, I think it was, or Worcester Street in, in Soho, near a subway station, people started arriving. And three people of color came. Never in Sora's 
gathering together for the photograph, and each one separately told me the same story. They looked and saw us, and they really wanted to be a part of it. And then one person, Ron Ballard, said, I saw my grandmother. Suddenly my grandmother appeared to me, and my grandmother had worked as a maid to put me through college. And I hadn't told her. And that, he I, was gay, that he was gay. That he was gay. And he turned around as excited as he was and went home. What's the beginnings of that down-low culture? Yeah. And the, the second person, the, the other two were women. The same sort. She was a high school teacher, and her grandmother had worked to put her through college and was very proud of her. And she didn't know she was a lesbian. And she couldn't do she couldn't do that to her grandmother. So the result was that there were no people of color in no, the No, but that's the reason. It wasn't that we chose only white people. It was right. who showed up. Right. Uh, and at one point, people were trying to put black faces in there. No, this is the reality of racism. And what I learned from that experience, which I had never thought about before, was dual oppression. I remember in the middle 60s when Jimmy Ball, who lived around the corner from me in the village. The author. Term, yes. James Bolton. The actor's studio was doing Blues for Mr. Charlie, which was a play he had written. And I was around those rehearsals because I, I was studying with Lee Strasberg. And I remember looking at this guy, I thought, this is a big sissy with a loud mouth, but there's no way of him passing as a straight male. And why? And he couldn't come out. He could not come out. And I one time spoke to him very politely. And he said, do you understand what would happen to me as a black man if I came out? I would lose all my credibility. I would lose my ability to be heard. And I was shocked. I, Jim, because of his upbringing, had never thought about that. Never thought about it. So dual oppression became very clear to me. It's also the lesbians separated from the gay men. I remember, I think it wasn't Michaela, but it was one of Michaela's friends. Who I was friendly with a lesbian. Not all gay men like lesbians, certainly in that time, generationally. And I said, and I said, oh, I don't, why are you leaving? They didn't all leave, but a majority of them did. And she said, Jim, it's not about hating men. And yes, some of these men are really sexist, and you have to do something about that. But we want to be with women. We love women. We want to organize women. That's the reason we're leaving. It's not about we hate you and sexism. And, it, and that is rarely told. And it made, it made perfect sense to me at the time. Angle to it. And it became clear to me when I got some flack for having photos on Instagram page from the 80s that are you know, highly monochromatic, as I was told, all white faces. And that's because of how we grew up and what my job introduced me to, et cetera. And one of my black friends said, if you'd like to combat those accusations, come with me. And I did. And be my roommate at this all-black LGTB cultural arts festival in Cancun two years ago for Memorial Day. Wow. So I went and spent the weekend as one of two whites in a group of 322 people. And a lot came out of that weekend, including skepticism on the part of those who'd heard I was going to be there. But I overcame it, and I felt at home, and it was a wonderful experience. But I had expected that I would see a highly gay male, uh, sorry, a highly black gay male gathering. And it was quite the opposite. It was 50-50 men and women, which you would never see in the gay and lesbian community. And it took me a while to hear and learn why. Because they belonged to two minorities. And in um, of those two minorities, the one they can't ever hide is their color. That's right. And so their predominant orientation and emotional connection goes first to their color and secondarily to the sexual orientation. And the result is that they, if a black man sees a black lesbian enter the room, he's just as happy as seeing a black gay man. Now, in our community, it's you rarely go into a group of 300 people and see an even split between men, gay men and lesbians. And it's because we look at the world through a prism of only one minority status. So it's a, what you're calling about the, the, yeah, and the it's oppression. The dominant, of, and yeah. the privilege of being, whether you're poor and white or you're rich and white, it's the skin color that gives you the privilege. And it took me, these moments is when I realized, I never thought about that. Yeah. I never understood that part of my white skin is what gave me 
the ability to do a lot of the things that I did that other people were afraid of doing. This has been wonderful, and I'd love to go on, but we're getting the end of our time. We may need to have to reconvene and do another session just because there's so much else in your life that you've accomplished. Is there anything else you want to say about the ending of the of the Stonewall uh, Rebellion and or how that relates to today? I think it's a very... When I went to Occupy Wall Street for the first time, and they had this whole system of consensual and people talking, putting their names in, on a stack and then get called on to respectfully hearing each other. And I started to cry. because It was so much like the gay liberation. It was endless. And if you got called on, you better say what you want to say because you're not going to get called on until tomorrow again. Everybody's uh, equal. Everybody gets a chance. Yes. And I remember in the gay liberation front, we, we had in the first our first meetings, we had a little talisman that was a Native American talisman. I don't know who brought it, but each person held it. And passed it on to the next Yes, speaker. and and sometimes, and because that was their time. They had three minutes to say right. something, and they held it. And, and a lot of people couldn't say anything. They had never said anything out loud. And they were there, but... Still blocked. And we let the three minutes go by just so they could have that experience. And it went around. And I remember, come to me, and I can talk. You know? <laughs> and But I realized that I, I had better listen to what's been said so I don't repeat something. Or if I want to respond to something, I better use it in this month because it's going to take another hour or so to get back to me. And that's what I occupy Wall Street. And I realized with Black Lives Matter, it's not just a slogan, it's about action. And it's, I watched, I went out, my, my husband was in the hospital at the time, and he could only hear it from the window or see it on television. But I went out marching, but I was the old man on the side with my mask on, trying not to get, and I worried that they were all going to be maskless, and they were going to be like a lot of white radicals were doing right. at the time. But I, I saw them, the people that were maskless were approached by the black people that were there with masks and given them to. I didn't need to say anything. I didn't, huh? And then what's happened today is there are so many black voices and brown voices, and they're incredible. There have been many times when I have been scheduled to speak on something, and the person has already spoken and said what I wanted to say and done it fantastically, I was able at this point in my life to, to let go of my ego and just not have to repeat. I was on the founding board of Glisten back in 96. Mm -hmm. And the, the way we handled that was when it came your turn, if you agreed with something that you'd said, you'd just say, I did owe what said. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't quite there. But it, it, this is a perfect time for multi-politics, multi-issue politics. That's the only thing. And we, ha we cannot fight it amongst ourselves. I have changed my tactic. I um, now look for what I have in common with someone before I figure out what is not in common. And if they're homophobic, I look at, listen to the content and how it's done and what do I have within that content that I can speak back on. I don't waste myself time with people that are so hopeless. You know, it's just a waste of energy. But also identifying what I have in common with these people. For example, the, the, we hear a lot about defund the police. Yeah. I never was for defunding the police. I want the police to be, the, the, it's not about the individual cop anymore, although it is who gets hired to be a cop. It's about the system and the policies within the system and the training. I want peace officers. I want peace officers. We live in a time where there's a lot of violence and a lot of anger. And Thank you, Fox News, for just revving people up. I want peace officers. And we do in our community today and in the recline Reclaim Pride and Queer Liberation March. Which is the New York City alternative or uh, Yeah, but it's, but it's been replicated in other cities now. Right. Um, and I'm, I have a lot of criticism of it, but I'm there. We have people that are marshals that are, are non-violent. Yeah. Yeah. Non-violent. And just as inside, the police in uniform are not welcome there. And we train our own marshals in order to prevent right. violence. And, and it's, it, when you hear... Oh, they didn't let. They didn't want the police in their uniforms in the march. There's a whole history why that uniform, what that uniform means, not only to white gay and lesbian people, 
And I certainly come from the generations that know about that. But to the black community, it's triggering. Well, it, yes, and and but that didn't mean they couldn't march and, and out of uniform. And there are good cops and there are bad cops. There are good political people and they're bad. I have become completely influenced by AOC. I listened to her and I changed my vote for mayor based on what she said. Because she's not only out there, she's really smart in what she said. She's clear. And when I saw the documentary, and she was a barred mistress while she was running for for Congress, working on Wall Street and having to put up with a lot of sexual harassment, right. just ordinary male banter. And I find that and I'm so grateful that I have this in my life today, that I can recognize that I don't have to do it if someone else does it. And if someone else does it, the way I have to address that is not to shame or make myself feel better than, but to explain how I got to this point and share it, you know, share it. Well, that's the, the wisdom of, hopefully, of age. But not, yes, and not everybody has it. Right. So... Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I will. I don't want to be stuck in the past. I am not nostalgic. I only talk about the past when people get it wrong because I do not want people to have to repeat the mistakes of my generation. Well, someone who was there and experienced it all and remembers it clearly and has spoken about it at some length over decades, I think your voice needs to be heard because there are so many false narratives going around. And one of the things we, we all say is that for the first time, we were able to tell our own stories openly and authentically. But we need to make sure that those narratives are, I hate to say preserved because they're not in formaldehyde, but they're documented and they're there for generations to come. We still can talk about when I was in jail in Texas, no less. We can talk about the Purple Star Tribe in the 70s. We can talk about, the thing about my life is I've never been a ghetto person, but I believe in safe spaces. And I think that when I did my clubs, they were safe spaces for women and gay people. Straight men had to really be nice to get in, but they got in. They wanted those women. <laughs> yes. They also wanted to, see, I, I think culture is how you change people's right. minds, you know? A lot of political rhetoric doesn't change, but you... When I had dance, there were always clubs where people danced and had live music and art and that kind of, of cultural stuff. But if you, and I had the greatest DJs, I had the best DJs in town at the time, uh, with all due respect to the garage and right. other places. You get people dancing together who would never talk to each other, who may be frightened of each other, and that's on both sides. You get them dancing together. You begin to have a conversation. You actually be, and I really believe that's also what's happening now. Well, that's what Bammer's about, creating community through storytelling. It's a shared exchange, whether it's stories, music, what have you. Well, thank you again, Jim. This has been a treasure. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nikolov. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.